The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome a fellow registered dietitian, Ms. Lauren Swan. She has special expertise in nutrition communications and food labeling regulations. She works with the food industry, media, public health organizations, and consumers to help them figure out the facts about food. Ms. Swan also initiated and moderates LinkedIn's largest food labeling and advertising and cultural foodways groups. She is a frequent contributor to the Association of Food and Society's Facebook page, and she writes and speaks nationally. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in medical dietetics from Howard University and a Master of Science in Nutrition Communications from Boston University, and she is based just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in Ben Salem. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. I want to know how you found your unique niche in nutrition communications and then became an expert in the finer points of food labeling. Well, my bachelor's degree was in medical dietetics. I wanted to work in healthcare, and I had always enjoyed cooking and shopping and working with food, trying out new recipes, trying out new dishes at restaurants. So I went after college. I did work in hospitals for a year as a clinical dietitian, but I wanted most of my work to be on the preventive end, mm. as in instead of counseling people after they get sick, how can we influence people to eat healthfully so that they don't get sick or right. they don't get as sick? And that's what led me to nutrition communications, and I went back to graduate school and got the master's degree in nutrition communications. And during that graduate program, I interned in the public relations department of an advertising agency. And after that experience, I moved to Chicago for a variety of different reasons, one of which was there was a lot of opportunity, a lot of food industry, a lot of trade associations, and a lot of public relations firms and advertising agencies that handle food accounts. And I got a job with Kraft Foods as a consumer communications specialist, and I worked on informational brochures and newsletters. We targeted both consumers directly as well as professionals, home economists, teachers. I introduced mailings to dietitians. While I was at Kraft during the mid-'80s, the Kellogg's company put a message on their all-brand box about cancer, and that is what triggered the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act of 1990, which I know is over 30 years old. But these were a lot of events that propelled things along. And within Kraft, there was an opening in the Regulatory Affairs Department in labeling compliance. And I applied for the opening. It was a promotion, and I got it. And I believe they were happy to have someone who brought more of a consumer marketing and nutrition background to a department that actually had other registered dietitians, but regulatory affairs was very technical. And the NLEA and this message on the box 
about cancer and eating all bran was sort of a sign that the industry was turning and the label was going to become more of a marketing piece. And that's what led me to where I am today at the intersection of marketing communications and food labeling regulation compliance. Well, it's very interesting. And I think that we all gain some benefit from having some time in a hospital to see what poor diets can lead to. And like you, I wanted to leave that clinical setting, which is very important, but I too wanted to work in prevention. And I have found food labels to be so informative, but also confusing to many consumers. And so that's why I wanted to share some of your expertise. What do you think have been some of the most important improvements to the food label in your years working in this area? Well, we have the Nutrition Facts panel, which was an upgrade from the old nutrition labeling that was only required if you made a nutrient content claim, and they are all defined now. We have nutrient content claims defined. We have health, also known as disease prevention claims defined. We have more of a framework for structure function claims that relate a nutrient or even a botanical or herbal component of a food or ingredient to a normal body process. So a lot of these things are established and laid down. And we have more companies, I believe, proposing. For example, we now have stevia and and monk fruit on the market as sweeteners. So we have companies working, trying to produce foods that are consistent with public health goals. So I do see progress there. And, And food labeling continues to evolve. You know, names about products that are plant based but simulate meat and dairy, or GMO biotech labeling, or carbon footprint and sustainable labeling. All those things are emerging, and those are things that FDA has to make decisions about policies and rules, and then companies want to capitalize on them and use them to market their products. Right. Well, we should talk about some of the newer trends, I think, in labeling, because they're so fascinating. And I I had questions, too. Let's talk about plant-based products, because they are all the rage right now. And we've got some interesting products in the marketplace. We have standards of identity that, well, why don't you tell us what standards of identity are in the dairy field? And then we can talk about some of these plant-based milks. Yes, and in the dairy field, we have established standards of identity established by the Food and Drug Administration in the Code of Federal Regulations that tell you what is milk and all the different kinds of cheeses and different kinds of yogurt. All those standards are established that if you want to use this name, this is what the composition of the product needs to be. We also can modify a product name. So... We have butter, which is defined in the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, but we also have peanut butter, which is defined in the Standards of Identity. So we can have those kinds of situations where within the product name, you are distinguishing it, Mm -hmm. and that's why there are products on the market like oat milk and soy milk, and here's one we've seen for a long time, coconut milk. Right. That's why those products are there. Well, I know the dairy industry was not happy with some of the plant-based milks like oat milk and almond milk. Where do we stand on that? Will these plant-based milks have to have some sort of 
disclaimer on their labels to alert the consumer that, no, 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 this isn't really like dairy milk where you can count on certain nutrients being there. So whether you buy goat milk or sheep's milk or cow's milk, you're going to get a lot of protein and calcium, for example. But with a plant-based milk, I know there were some parents that were giving children soy milk or oat milk or almond milk, thinking that they were getting the equivalent in nutrients as they might from a cow's milk. And we were seeing children that were becoming malnourished as a result. That's correct, and that's an excellent point that we have to be careful about assuming nutritional equivalence. Some milks like soy milk, and I think to some extent almond milk, they've been around for a while as alternatives because some people turn to them for because they're lactose intolerant. Right. And soy milk, some soy milks are fortified. Any of the plant milks can be fortified. But I know from having done one-on-one comparisons, they're not usually exactly the same. So every single nutrient that milk might be providing in someone's diet who drinks milk regularly might not be provided or might not be provided at the exact same amount as what you might find in a plant-based milk, even if it's fortified. So that is a very important consideration. Some of these products are using the word beverage because there have been lawsuits. And FDA has announced that they intend to pursue this area for further consideration. They do recognize it as something that they need to establish some policies, some guidance, some rulings. So they have announced that intent. And then I know at the state level, there has been some laws made. But the last time I checked, and truthfully, I usually check on these things when I'm working on a project or something that involves it because they can change so quickly. Absolutely. The last time I checked, some of the states who had passed laws about alternative products and names, the laws are not in effect yet. Right. So, and there is, with that going on, there are some lawsuits trying to reverse the laws already. So that type of thing is happening too. Right. So it's an area to watch. It's evolving and it's not yet finalized. Well, I think you make an excellent point, and that is we really can't answer any of these specific questions because things are so rapidly changing. So it's really a buyer beware market. I don't know about you, but I usually direct consumers to the ingredient label and that nutrition facts panel so that they make valid comparisons, lest they be confused that they might be giving a child, say, a product that has high calcium, but really it doesn't. I agree with you 100%. In my opinion, the Nutrition Facts panel and the ingredient list are two extremely important elements of disclosure on the label that will guide the consumer to the objective information about the composition of that product where, just like we're talking about now, product names and claims and all kinds of fanciful, you know, vignettes and graphics even suggest things. Right. That might draw us into a product, but if we want the facts about a product, look at the nutrition facts and the ingredient list. That's where you're going to find out the ingredients of predominance. They'll be at the beginning of that ingredient list and all of the nutrient information. Do you find that most consumers understand that ingredients are listed in order of predominance by weight? I believe they do, if they've ever taken the time to learn about an ingredient list. And that it's not unusual to have something like this in a high school or college health class or to pick up something at a health fair. 
the Internet and blogs and websites and social media have enabled a lot more information sharing. So I think lots of consumers, even ones who are tuned into label reading, I think they do recognize that. Well, it is a, a confusing marketplace, especially when someone is shopping when they're hungry and they're rushed and it's late and they want to put dinner on the table and they might have children in tow. That's the worst time to be shopping, I think. There is a movement to have front-of-label package information. Do you want to explain what this front-of-label packaging terminology might look like? To the best of my understanding, it would be similar or somewhat similar to some of the optional labeling that we're seeing. We call them front-of-package call-outs. It's not unusual if you look in the bottom package of many food labels today to see symbols, numbers in distinct symbols. It's usually in the lower corner that will call out calories, maybe sodium, saturated fat, and right now it's optional. And front-of-pack labeling that I believe in some other countries is now a requirement, and it's also controversial there. But there is research that appears to show that it is helpful to consumers, front-of-pack labeling, and that's the whole point. We're trying to deliver information that is helpful to consumers. Right. Lauren, let me take one break because we're halfway through, and I just need to remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Lauren Swan. She is a fellow registered dietitian, only she has special expertise in nutrition communications, food labeling regulations, as well as food advertising and marketing. Well, Lauren, I want to get back to the label because there's been something that has bothered me for years, and that has to be with sugar labeling. And of course, if a consumer is curious to know how much sugar they're getting in a product, and I would hope that they are, it's listed in terms of grams. And we are not very literate when it comes to this way of talking about amounts in the United States. So I always have to say to the consumer that you've got to read the ingredient label, see where sugar is in the long list. If it's one of the first three ingredients, then that's a red flag. And then you can go to the nutrition facts panel and you can see how much sugar is added. And then you've got to do the hard work of adding up grams and then taking the number of grams dividing by four in order to get teaspoons. Do you think the industry will ever report sugar in terms of teaspoons rather than grams? I know that's been proposed, and I know I think some companies sometimes do create things with labels to show things like that. One of the issues right off the top would be that added sugar isn't just going to be a teaspoon of white table sugar. It could be corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup or fructose or any number of nutritive sweeteners that are added. It could be honey. It could be concentrated fruit juice. They will all end up as grams of added sugar. If they're added for sweetener and for the concentrated fruit juice, if there is not enough water in the finished product to dilute it back to a single-strength juice, and FDA has standards for that, it's considered a sweetener. So that might be a little challenging. Not that it would be impossible. I've seen that model proposed. So it wouldn't just say 
10 grams of sugar, you'd see like a quarter teaspoon or a teaspoon of sugar. And I would imagine that the sugars that are not white granulated table sugar could be quantified in the same way. Mm-hmm. Another area of interest has to do with fat. And right now what we have on a label is saturated fat and unsaturated fat and total fat. But we don't have a slot for the omega-3 fatty acids, which many people are trying to get more in their diet. Is there any movement that you are aware of where there will be an addition to that food facts label? For that specifically, I'm not aware of an effort. What I do know is many companies that produce products like flax or canned salmon will add that voluntarily. I've seen it. And even if they don't, a lot of people know mackerel, herring, sardines. They're rich in omega-3. Right. The other thing is they can declare the amount of omega-3 fatty acids. They can declare a quantitative amount. And if it happens to be ALA, alpha-linoleic acid, they can also make a claim about it because that one does have what is the equivalent of a reference daily intake, so a percent daily value can be determined. So there are options, and I know I have clients that do just that. They make sure that they declare it, and they would like to see it within the Nutrition Facts panel, but right now it, it can't be there. Right. But a manufacturer could slap a statement on the front of the package, correct? Absolutely. You can make an optional claim about the quantitative, the number of milligrams or grams of an omega-3 fatty acid. And if it's ALA, you can make a nutrient content claim also. Lauren, how trustworthy are those amounts on labels? I think years ago I had learned that there was some fudge factor, for example, with calories, say, how much can we trust what's listed? Well, the FDA allows a tolerance, but it's not really supposed to be a tolerance that companies can take advantage of. It's a tolerance considering that the manufacturing environment is not perfect. Mm. So the tolerance is for what we might consider to be the good nutrients like vitamins and minerals and fiber and protein. If FDA pulls a product and analyzes it and they have a sampling procedure so they don't just pull one package off the shelf and they look at lot codes and production codes and dates and things of that nature, if it's within 20%, so if the product analyzes up to 20% lower for, again, vitamins, minerals, protein, fiber, what we think of as the good nutrients, that's a tolerance, that's a range. And then the opposite for what we think of as the bad nutrients, so to speak, like sodium and cholesterol and fat, would be 20% higher. Now, something else to take into consideration If that same company, you know, that was discovered, if FDA continued to go back to that company and pull that product and it was consistently up to 20% higher, that would be grounds for them to take a closer look at what's going on. So that's intended to take into consideration more of an average over time. Sure. How often does FDA pull products for testing? Do you know? That I don't know. I do know government officials, FDA and USDA, for products that contain meat, they have labeling jurisdiction over them. 
They usually have a weekly task list that might focus on a certain area. It could be labeling. It could be adulterated product. And FDA inspectors, they inspect food, dietary supplements, of course, beverages, medical devices, over-the-counter drugs, prescription medication, and medical. So they have a lot. And cosmetics. Right. So they have a lot, and they get a task list. But there is an FDA label violation warning database. Actually, it's warning letters, but you can find label violation warnings in there. And it is current. I research it a lot because it will explain FDA's disposition on certain labeling issues. And they're not always right. Sometimes FDA will cite a manufacturer for a labeling violation, and they have to withdraw the letter. And they will publish that because the company might come to them and say, this is why we label it this way. This is what regulations say. And they might discover that the company can then can support what they were doing. Well, the FDA website with all sorts of labeling information is very informative. And I do recommend that consumers go there if they want to learn more. But I'm glad that you brought up USDA and meat labeling. I know that there has been a lot of consternation among small farmers specifically about this country of origin labeling. And sometimes you can have a label on a product that says that it was produced in the United States when actually it wasn't. Do you want to comment on any of that? Well, produced in the United States might be relating to what's called substantial transformation. So that if you import ingredients from a bunch of different places, but then you make it into something very different than what you imported, you did produce it here. Now, there's the Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Marketing Service, AMS. That is country of origin labeling for raw commodities, raw single ingredients, certain vegetables. They have a list. So that's one thing. But when it comes to a packaged product or other kind of product, Again, there's substantial transformation that can take place, and that is actually under Customs and Border Patrol. Mm. And they also have a database of letters about what is or is not substantial transformation. That will get into things like even if you're importing nuts from different countries and mixing them up, that isn't necessarily substantial transformation. Well, I think that you would agree that the more transparency we have in the food system and with labeling, the better off the consumer will be. But it's tough to navigate some of these things. And so it's always good to have resources. Do you post any information on a website or through your blog where people might be able to follow some of these issues? Where should they go? Where I do most of my posting about labeling news is on LinkedIn. I have a food labeling group. It's the largest food labeling group on LinkedIn, and it got an award for the Intergroups program. Congratulations. Um, so any, yeah, thank you. Anyone is welcome to join. You don't have to be a labeling professional or specialist. There are a lot of labeling and professionals and specialists in the group. But I don't have any criteria for joining except that you have an interest in labeling. And we do stick to labeling, but, but it includes nutrition labeling. And we try to cover emerging topics that also relate closely to labeling. I will provide a link that, to that so that people can join. I'm glad you brought up emerging topics because I think that you and I probably have a hard time keeping up with all of the new 
label claims, whether we're talking about the plant-based foods, the clean claims, the sustainable, earth-friendly carbon labels, we just have a few minutes left. What do you want consumers to know about this rapidly changing environment? Well, number one, FDA really does try to balance industry, advocacy, scientific research. They try to balance all of that, public health goals and come up with regulations that inform the consumer so they can make an informed decision. But they can't restrict industry from marketing their products, free enterprise, free, you know, free trade, free marketplace. So that's the balance. And consumers can comment on any of these things. It's easier than ever. When a Federal Register announcement comes out, anyone can comment on it. You can go online and do it. Go to federalregister.gov, or if you go to the FDA website, Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition Labeling, you can find the news update. When there's something up for comment, anyone can comment on it, and FDA is required by law to read every single comment that they get. What have been some of the biggest comment areas? Well, something else that's really interesting that's very current In this age of online retailing, there are consumers and groups that are concerned that when you go to an online merchandising site, be it the retailer or the company itself, the front package label that you see might not be the exact same one that you see when you go to a grocery store. And because of that, some consumers have to hunt for allergen information. However, these companies make sure that they still blast all their claims right there. So that comment period has closed. That actually came out under a food safety modernization regulatory issues because of the allergen labeling. But it does get into merchandising and front of package labeling, and FDA does have requirements about when information has to appear on the front panel. It's not always appearing online. So that's a new area that I'm watching that's very interesting. And then I think the comment period just closed for some of the the names, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. I announce those things in my food labeling group. When they are announced through FDA or USDA, I announce them in my food labeling group. And the link is right there. You click on the link. It takes you into the site. You can read it. And you can comment right there online. And you can go back and see your comments. You can go back and see what everyone else has commented, too. That's considered public domain. Wonderful. Well, you are providing a wealth of resources for consumers and industry alike. I know you recently gave a talk to a group of dietitians about dietary supplement labeling. I'm sure you've got some information also on the LinkedIn site about that, because that's a whole other category. Perhaps I'll have to have you back to go into some of those details. But Lauren, we're out of time. Is there one final message you want to leave our listeners? Please use your food labels to make your purchases. That's what they're there for. Don't hesitate to give feedback to a company or to the government about what matters to you on a food label. It's important that we hear from the public about effective ways to deliver information about products so they can make informed decisions. Excellent. Thank you, Lauren. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN 
in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Lauren Swan. She is a registered dietitian with special expertise in nutrition communications and food labeling regulations. She works with the food industry, media, public health organizations, and consumers to help us all figure out the facts about our food. Lauren, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.